Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking once again. So I am back with another one of those block rocking beats for all those who knew your uh, late 90s Manchester dance music. And for those who don't, I'm just back. Um, It's been a little bit longer than I would have liked to put this episode out. I've had a cold, pretty bad one. And um, yeah, long-term listeners will remember my... uh, health woes <laughs> over the last couple of years um so it's, it's been a bit diff- busy just in general and i had a cold and stuff so anyway making up for lost time here i am back again solo uh, today but next week um at the time of recording this next week we should be having a, a round table again i know a few people have messaged saying that they missed the round table so there'll be one of those coming next week and it'll be uh, dave ash i think greg's having a break at the moment so we won't have greg um but and we'll get some of the, the usual suspects on and, and do a roundtable discussion about what's been going on. But for now, let's get into some recent events that have been happening. So, a big one, of course, has been the Arrow Report. Now, the thing is, I've not really been in a massive rush to get onto the microphone anyway to talk about this. Because, you know, is there really that much to discuss with it? Not not really. Um However, you know, there's a few bits that are worth talking about and discussing so, and some related points as well, which kind of tie into the bigger picture. So we'll get into all of that. So first of all, Arrow, um, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, has released another report, uh, an unclassified report, which I think at this point, when they do release these reports, they're not really particularly anticipated in the same way that these reports initially were like years ago we used to get the uap task force reports and even the initial arrow reports they were really kind of hyped up online and that kind of thing and i noticed a significant decrease in that hype at this point and you know the reason for that is that the language that's been used has kind of formed a pattern over the last few of these reports that have come out and it clearly seems to be deliberately boring and vague language minimizing language even dismissive and determined to present this whole issue as nothing to see here despite the kind of glaringly obvious information seeming to suggest otherwise the opening comments and approach laid out by kirkpatrick uh sean that's dr sean kirkpatrick the arrow director when he was actually announced as the, the director of Arrow, the comments were a bit concerning in general to myself and, and some others, certainly Dave, my co-host and co-conspirator, um, was less optimistic about what we were likely to see going forward. Um, you know, I, I, I was kind of definitely bearing in mind some of the uh, concerning comments, but also trying to remain optimistic at the same time, as, as many were. And I think some people are extremely optimistic about it and really singing the praises of Kirkpatrick. Um, and, you know, we said at the time, as we often say with these things, the proof's going to be in the pudding. Uh, we've had several batches of the pudding by this point. And, um, you know, the way that they're going with this is kind of clear to see at this stage. And uh, I think that that sort of pessimism, pessimism is not even really the right way to, to, to describe it, but just for the sake of putting a, a name on it that pessimism really was was 
said and, and was, was put forward with good reason. So, because the initial warning signs were all there. Things like the commitment to do a proper scientific investigation, getting all the data that they possibly can and leaving all options on the table and doing the best investigation possible. And all of that language sounded really positive at the beginning of all of this when Arrow was first announced. But in the same breath, saying things like at the hearing back in April of this year, quote, I want to underscore today that only a very small percentage of UAP reports display signatures that could reasonably dis be described as anomalous. The majority of unidentified objects reported to Arrow demonstrate mundane characteristics of balloons, aerial systems, uncrewed aerial systems, that is, clutter, natural phenomena, or other readily explainable sources, unquote. And that basically led to a lot of articles writing um you know being written with with lines like quote the director of the pentagon's new ufo office shot down hopes that the current buzz over unidentified anomalous phenomena supports claims of extraterrestrial visitation unquote that's an actual um opening couple of lines from an article that came out around about the time uh, of those comments coming out and you know, that has to be why a statement like that would be put out by the RO director. I mean, think about what that particular phrase there is actually saying. You know, it's saying that there's a small percentage of these cases that are reported which are extremely interesting and can't really be explained and don't demonstrate mundane characteristics. But the way that it's worded is, I want to underscore today... Even just the way that that comment starts out is deliberately designed to sort of make a very clear point about something that only a very small percentage of UAP reports. Now, certain things that I've done in my line of work, if you say things like a very small percentage, you know, people in the statistics department will be all over that because it's, it's, it's kind of deliberately phrasing it in a way that minimizes it. Why not just put an actual percentage on it? If it's very small, what's that? what does that mean? 10% is very small to some people. 30% might be very small to some people. 0.1% is very, that is definitely very small. So like, you can't really use things like very small percentage unless you're trying to specifically convince the reader that this is nothing to worry about. Why not actually put a proper percentage on it? Because they have that information. If you say 5% of UAP reports display signatures you know that could reasonably described as anomalous and you know how many the reports are then you've actually got proper information at hand that you can work with but that kind of thing a lot of people who have to write reports you know in their in their day jobs would get a slap for uh, well not not literally but they would be reprimanded for using that kind of language because it's not scientific a very small percentage is, is that that's it could be interpreted a lot of different ways and it's not really useful other than to specifically make the point that nothing to see here, you know, and I could go on and on. But if we think about rephrasing that to, for example, quote, the great bulk of them could be explained as hoaxes, mistakes, or naturally occurring phenomena. The rest of the sightings, which were made by credible observers of relatively incredible things, were what we were attempting to resolve, unquote. I mean, that still uses generalization such as the great bulk, but I mean... That is, um, as many people will have recognised as I was reading out, 
That's almost an exact quote from Major General John Sanford, Director of Intelligence for the Air Force, who held a press conference in 1952 after ground observers and uh, radar picked up fast-moving objects, unidentified objects, over the nation's capital in the States. And he clearly spoke about credible observers reporting relatively incredible things. So that's just an interesting example from history. We're talking about something there from literally 70 years ago where, you know, an actual um, director of intelligence for the Air Force held a press conference talking about this exact same issue and basically said the same thing, but in a way that made it sound like there was something more interesting here. And for me, that's the problem with the statements that Sean Kirkpatrick makes, and it's the problem with the wording of these reports, is that they seem deliberately worded to minimise interest and to deflect you know, any interest away. Oh, don't worry about it, there's nothing to see here. All you've got to do is tweak a few words, and the exact same information being presented can seem a lot more interesting. And um, even if you go all the way back to the 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 fall as the americans like to say i do actually really like that phrase the fall we don't typically use it here in uh, in the uk however the fall is is a is a great way of describing autumn and since we're in the fall right now in the uk and uh, as i record this i'm looking out of my window and i can see all of the trees with the beautiful autumn leaves i do have a fondness for this time of year so let me take you back to the fall of 1947 general nathan twining then the head of the air force material command authored a memo on this very subject reviewing classified data he concluded that the phenomena is something real and not visionary or fictitious now again this is going back to over 70 years ago we're talking about almost 75 years ago and you know at this same time of year in the fall you know we had uh, somebody coming out a high level official official from the air force and and the the wording that was used back then was that this is something real it's not visionary it's not fictitious it's something that we have to deal with and how is it that 70 years on you know how how on earth have we come so far only to have an arrow director essentially the government's ufo organization the group set up by the government to satisfy the demands of the public to know what's going on with this essentially in a kind of roundabout way with the the director of this group all these years later than than those statements i just read out actually seeming to deliberately use this kind of minimizing language and, and put that spin on words to make this appear as though there's nothing to see here i mean you know there's, there's echoes of this in nasa's approach uh, when the study to look into uh, UAP was announced, um, I forget the exact date now, but it's sometime towards the end of last year, there was a statement given that there was no evidence that UAP are extraterrestrial in origin. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, I said this all at the time, you know, if, if, if you're looking into an investigation as to how a car accident happened, you know, of something serious that people want answers to, and you come out at the beginning of the investigation and you say, we haven't gathered any evidence yet, but we're keeping all options on the table, we're going to have a thorough investigation, and blah, blah, blah. Having said that, there's no evidence that the car accident was caused by ice on the road. It would make you suspect that they're trying to avoid coming to that collusion, wouldn't it? It's just weird. Like, Why would you want to 
you know, try and claim that you're leaving all options on the table, but at the same time, seemingly before the investigation even begins, say, oh yeah, but I know we're keeping everything on the table, but this particular thing, we don't reckon that's the case. It's just not reassuring. And there's echoes of that in the NASA studies, in when Arrow were trying to do, and in Sean Kirkpatrick's kind of, you know, interventions when anything seems to happen in this topic. And even down to the fact that he actually goes on uh, national news in advance of this report coming out to basically use that same minimizing language on a mainstream news platform you know to sort of set the scene for the report coming out in the first place it, when you add all this together it's not looking good in terms of you know having faith in in the the open-minded scientific nature of this investigation now arrow keep talking about how they want people to come speak to them but when people do you know, their testimony is apparently not recorded properly and then statements come out from Kirkpatrick to say that they haven't received any credible evidence, which has come as a bit of a slap in the face to the witnesses who've actually gone forward to Arrow. Essentially, people are, are coming forward, you know, making the big step to decide to, to go forward to Arrow and, and report this information, uh, you know, through an official process and sort of do the right thing because of something that they've witnessed they genuinely think has a serious national security implication and they're making the effort to do this and in some cases you know psyching themselves up to to be able to actually go through that experience again and and, and then to have a statement come out to say that they haven't received any credible evidence it really is a bit of a slap in the face to the people who've who've made the effort to come forward and when a decorated intelligence officer, David Grush, comes out and says on record, under oath at a hearing, that not only has he seen compelling evidence that there is a craft of non-human origin being held, but he can provide specific information to prove where this is and a list of witnesses who he interviewed as part of his specific job that he had working for the government to actually look into this stuff, i.e. UFOs, UAP, you'd think... Arrow and Kirkpatrick would be knocking his door down to get that information. But what actually happened was, I mean, believe it or not, because even reading the, you know, even going through these these words that were that were said in these statements, reading the statements that Kirkpatrick puts out, you know, I'm thinking, is this even real? Because when it first came out, this statement, essentially, Sean Kirkpatrick, the director of Arrow, put out a, a letter, an open letter on LinkedIn, and I actually thought it was fake, to be honest with you, at the time. I, I thought there's no way that somebody that this could actually be... Surely not. And anyway, it turned out that it's actually legit. So Kirkpatrick put out this kind of smear job of a letter, attacking the approach taken by Grush and, st and restating that, quote, Arrow has yet to find any credible evidence to support the allegations of any reverse engineering program for non-human technology, unquote. You know... And it's just baffling that that is what you would do. You know, somebody comes out as a whistleblower with a verified government background of actually having worked, you know, with the UAP task force and as uh, claiming to have direct evidence of all of the stuff that Arrow are looking for. And all you're going to do is get me in, in the right setting in terms of secure information facility, get me in there with the people who've got the clearances to hear this information, I'll tell you where it is, how it's been funded, the people involved, a list of cooperative and hostile witnesses, the whole lot. And instead of actually jumping on that amazing chance, you know, to actually get the information that Arrow is supposedly looking for, Kirkpatrick puts out this letter slamming Grush. It just seems absolutely bizarre. And 
anyway, it is what it is. But the fact is, at the end of the day, is that when Arrow, you know, actually put something like this out, it's always Arrow hasn't found evidence of this or that. And even going back to when Scott Bray was representing the UAP task force way back at the, the first proper UAP hearing, he was asked about crash retrievals and, and recovered materials and technology. And he phrased that answer as, there are no materials within the UAP task force holdings. So it's always worded in a very specific way. And nobody really expects that the UAP task force had the material. But we're talking about, is the UAP task force aware of material existing in other parts of government? But of course, the the answer is phrased very carefully. So it's basically say, not a great deal. You know, um, if you're trying to wriggle out of any kind of admission that something like that is being held, you can just say, well, the UAP task force hasn't seen it. The UAP task force hasn't got that actual material. And you can word things in a very vague and particular way to make it seem as though there's nothing to see here. I mean, as it turns out, the work that the UAP task force did, I think was probably a little bit more of a potent investigation and what they actually managed to do behind the scenes during that time it, you know perhaps was had a bit more substance to it because i mean what we're talking about now from david grush coming out his work was basically at that time you know around that sort of era and what was going on behind the scenes was 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 really quite interesting but it seems as though as time has gone along the the capabilities of this this group this this office has been sort of watered down the accesses even have, have been sort of watered down and the the public messaging has become more and more vague and um, worded in a particular way as i've been describing earlier so if we get to the actual the the actual arrow report then um as I say, there really wasn't a great deal to say other than much of the same. I mean, you can go back and read the previous reports and isn't, there's not going to be a great deal in there. I know uh, folks like Ash from UFO Identified UK uh, you know, probably would quite enjoy these kinds of things, anything with a bit of statistics and a bit of uh, analysis and things like that in there. Uh, some people you know, do quite enjoy you know, going through that information and whatnot. But in terms of like new admissions and new information and stuff like that, not a great deal. I think buried away in the minimising language uh, is is a few uh, few key points which are as follows. Uh, quote: Some UAP have potentially exhibited concerning performance characteristics such as high speed travel or unusual manoeuvrability. Unquote. So that one's uh, you know uh, seems like hidden away in the kind of minimising language. It's quite a a strong verification that some of these objects. Uh, you know, which are a small percentage, as we, 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 you know, as we discussed earlier on, even back in 1952, they were saying this, you know, even if you get high credible, highly credible military witnesses with sensor systems and so on, there still can be misidentifications, you know, there's still, we have to remember that just because somebody's in the military, that doesn't mean that they're literally, you know, immune from making a misidentification, it's not the case, it can still happen, and we have to bear that in mind. And as we know, if you're looking at any database like MUFON or any, any of the big, you know, worldwide sort of UFO organizations, they all say the same thing that, you know, 5% or less are the actual interesting cases. Because anybody who looks up at the sky 
I've done this in the past when I first started the podcast and, and still do to this day. And, you know, when you're interested in it, you look up and you see things and there's so much up there that it's easy to make a misidentification. And especially if you're on military training ranges and things, there's going to be more stuff flying around, whether that be advers- adversarial um, spying craft and things like that. You know, who knows what, what's going on around some of these, these locations. So military or not you're going to have misidentifications you're going to have a a relatively small percentage of cases reported as being the really interesting ones and as i say that was the case back in 1952 it's still the case today and we you know we we knew that already but what this is saying is that some uap which presumably is part of that small percent have potentially exhibited concerning performance characteristics such as high-speed travel or unusual maneuverability. Now, those are the ones that we're actually interested in. All the rest, let's filter them off and stick to the ones that are that are very, very interesting. It also says, quote, Arrow has deconflicted these cases with potential US programs. None of these UAP reports have been positively attri- attributed to foreign activities, unquote. So, what we're basically saying there is, yes, there's a small percentage of cases that are extremely interesting. In some cases, so showing high-speed travel, unusual maneuverability. Arrow has actually been able to check that these uh, are not, you know, US black programs. And they've also been able to check whether or not they can be attributed to foreign activities, and they can. So what does that leave us with then? A small batch of extremely interesting cases and everybody knows that there's misidentifications all we want to know about is the really good ones but rather than you know presenting it that way because think about it if they've got 100 cases and five percent of them are very interesting can't be um explained away as black budget programs from the us or foreign activity and they have high speed travel and unusual unusual maneuverability even if they've only got 100 cases that means we've got five or two or whatever even one that is absolutely fascinating. That's what everybody's interested in. That's what Arrow should be talking about. But time and time again, all we get is lots of information about the 95% that can be easily explained. You know, when they release videos and show videos at hearings, did they show anything from the, the really interesting couple of percent? No, of course they don't. They show the really boring ones, the ones that could be anything, the one that's clearly a balloon. And you do have to ask, what's the motivation for taking that approach? But other than that, there wasn't really too much to write home about, to be quite honest. Um, I'd You know, worth going and having a read yourself. This is just my take, of course, as always. But what was very interesting timing was that the director of a previous confirmed official government UFO program, RSAP, which, again, I say confirmed because it's really important to understand that this is not just like a rumoured programme. You know, many listeners who, who've heard the show will obviously understand this already, but there may be people listening who are thinking, yeah, government UFO programme, really? You know, how do we know? It, it's legit. You know, there is absolutely no question about that at this point. The amount of people, respected, um, you know, folks within the intelligence community, within the military, within the government, whatever it might be, within all of that sort of larger structure... It's accepted that OSAP was an official government program that had funding and all the rest of it. And the the actual director of that program made some very interesting new statements over the last week or so. So um, there was basically a, a book that's, that's come out 
and uh, this particular book was called uh, Inside the, Go the US Government Covert UFO Program, Initial Revelations. And it's actually written by um, Dr. Lukatsky, who was the director of that program, Dr. James Lukatsky, George Knapp, and Dr. Colm Kelleher, who worked alongside Lukatsky. George Knapp's obviously a, like a veteran journalist who's been involved in the UFO topic for a long time. And, and Dr. Colm Kelleher worked alongside Lukatsky within ORSAP. And in the book, the following paragraph can be found. Quote, At the conclusion of a 2011 meeting in the Capitol building with a US senator, and an agency undersecretary, Lakatsky, the only one of this book's authors present, posed a question. He stated that the United States was in possession of a craft of unknown origin and had successfully gained access to its interior. This craft had a streamlined configuration suitable for aerodynamic flight, but no intakes, exhaust, wings, or control surfaces. In fact, it appeared not to have an engine, fuel tanks, or fuel. And Lukatsky asked, What was the purpose of this craft? Was it a life support craft useful only for atmospheric re-entry, or what? If it was a spacecraft, then how did it operate? And speaking about that particular passage there within the book, in an interview, uh, Lukatsky had confirmed What's in the book is an exact statement of the event that occurred in the congressional facility. So the interview, by the way, was on Weaponized, which is Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp's podcast. And obviously, since George Knapp was involved in the actual writing of this book, they've managed to get some really good interviews with Colm Kelleher and, and uh, James Lukatsky. And um, here we have Lukatsky. Uh, who is, by the way, a respected rocket scientist, basically, you know, somebody who's sort of, you know, fairly intelligent bloke. And, and he's worked for the, the Defence Intelligence Agency, DIA, um, and he's being interviewed here by George Knapp, Jeremy Corbell, and he's, he's clearly saying what's in that book is an exact statement of that event that's occurred. And, you know, what, what we're having here is confirmation of what's already been wrote in the book, that the United States is in possession of a craft of unknown origin and has successfully gained access to its interior. I mean, it's it's pretty, pretty mind-blowing. When you compare that to what the current director of the government's UFO group is, is saying, it's quite astonishing the difference in, in tone, isn't it? And Knapp actually asked him during the interview how they knew it was a craft and not a doorstop, as he said jokingly, or some other type of object. And Lukatsky responded by saying that that would go into the further discussion that took place. But further details about this will hopefully be authorised for publication uh, down the line. And, and a direct quote was, quote, There was more to it, considerably more to that discussion about what the situation was, unquote. That was from Lukatsky himself. And when pressed to sort of speak further about that meeting, Lukatsky did decline, saying that he would go no further than the, what was approved in the book by the Department of Defence, DOD, basically saying that there was fears there that would you know, potentially provide information to US you know, enemies, basically. And he used the quote, we are surrounded, but hopefully not so, by our enemies. And you can be sure they're listening to this show right now. 
Another reason for the secrecy that Lukatsky cited was that he wished to follow the rules. And he said, you know, quote, we followed the rules and there's a good reason, a good reason to follow, unquote. Now, first of all, why won't Lukatsky go into those further details? And there's a few specific reasons about this. Essentially, James Lukatsky is clearly... You know, somebody who's a patriot, somebody who doesn't want to give away information to adversaries. And, you know, there's also the sort of common sense thing of just he wants to protect his own legal position. Because, you know, people sign documents and, and go through a very rigorous process to make sure that they've committed to never revealing these secrets that they get, you know, informed about when they're doing their, their work within, you know, whichever type of organisation a secretive organization it may be whether it be the cia whether it be you know experimental government programs involving science work and whatever it might be people uh, you know have to go through a very specific process to sign documents legally saying that if i ever breach this there will be legal repercussions and we don't know the extent of what those legal repercussions actually could be depending on what was signed and, and what was committed to so obviously he's going to want to protect his own legal position isn't he if he says something, even a few words that could be interpreted a certain way beyond what he's been authorised to publish, he's screwing himself over, basically. He's not going to do that, is he? But also, as I say, because he is you know, a patriotic American who doesn't want adversaries to get you know, a handle on what the further information is. He also um, discusses as well a few quite interesting bits and pieces about potential forged documents within in being circulated internally now i thought this was a really really interesting point and it's something that i've suspected and i suppose many have suspected that is that is the case what when you've got a secret program like this you've obviously got a very large security budget and eric davis who's been another high level you know, um, highly respected scientist who's worked on all these kind of programs as contractors and as consultants, as a contractor and as, as a consultant, depending on the, the program over the years, he's been involved behind the scenes and uh, is suspected to have been quite highly read into a lot of this stuff. And um, he said that the actual program budget um, is, is a certain figure and then you've got 10 times that figure spent on security and counterintelligence. And when you've got a very, very secretive program that's looking into something as, you know, potentially impactful as this, you've got to remember that there's going to be adversaries who are going to try and find out about that. And Lukatsky actually, um, you know, admittedly, it's kind of hard to see exactly when he's joking and when he's talking very openly and so on. You know, he's, he's a bit of an eccentric character and, and some of that plays into this too. But he did seem to suggest that the, that they know, actually, he says, that there was consultants who were working as foreign agents. So people who had worked on these programs, they know that they were uh, compromised by foreign intelligence efforts. And what happens if that's the case? You would circulate and direct disinformation, potentially, to that compromised individual and that could mean that there are, as part of the official counterintelligence efforts, 
false information being circulated and only very specific people would be uh, would be given that the ones that were you know had been found to be compromised or whatever it might be but if you want to make that absolutely convincing, there may be other people as well who are not compromised who also end up seeing some of this disinformation. And only a very, very small number would actually be able to, to know exactly what was legit information and what wasn't. So it becomes, when we talk about like looking at the publicly available information and, and, and the, the waters being muddy, it becomes even more muddy when you consider that kind of thing. And to, to clearly state that they knew that they had consultants working on that program who were compromised is, I think, a quite a, a huge development. I mean, I've suspected that these kind of things might be the case, but to hear the actual director of the program say that... Now, if he starts talking about sort of specific further details and verifying that this or that might be the case, it might actually clear up some of that. If you've got foreign intelligence efforts looking into this program and they've got that agent embedded within as a consultant and they've they're trying to figure out what is you know false information you, you've got to be very careful not to verify anything that might then help them separate the wheat from the chaff also you, you definitely don't want them to even know that you know that their agent's been compromised you know it's it's extremely extremely muddy waters even to the point where Lukatsky was talking about a few other bits and pieces too, that like certain documents that are available publicly that seem to point towards a certain thing, even even some of those may be questionable in terms of whether or not those are disinformation efforts. And I think it's really important, you know, when we when we talk about your sort of FOIA requests and things like that, you know, obviously certain people are very, you know, that that's their thing, you know, for you, you know, and having a document to verify something is the absolute be all and end all in terms of, you know, direct proof that this is definitely a thing and we can verify that because we've got this document that we've managed to get through for you. The people within this program may be aware that that document is out there. Maybe they put it out there specifically as part of these counterintelligence efforts. And if you were there on the inside, you would know that that doesn't make sense because the information in that document, it, it wasn't the way that it actually was on the inside. And those people who are actually aware of this on the inside of these programs would be would know that for sure. And then if you see other people talking about the same kind of things, you know, convinced that it's fact, it must be quite frustrating and bizarre. But I think that's what we've got to be very, very careful of. And Lukatsky's talking about even some of the people who uh, Grush has, has interviewed perhaps have, have been susceptible to that disinformation. Now, there are some people who, who, who are of the opinion that it's unfair to even suggest that kind of thing. I, I, I get that. I understand it because the people who've come forward to Grush have done so at great personal risk. And, and you know, these people are, you know, uh, credible people and and what i'm saying here is not to suggest that they're not credible it's not to downplay the risk involved but it is quite possible that there's people who've been exposed to certain things perhaps disinformation which has been deliberately put out there you know internally as part of that disinformation when you think about the extent of what has gone on to protect these programs if they got 22 million 10 times that was you know, according to the estimates put forward by people who've, who've seen these kind of things on the inside, 
if it's really the case that 10 times that has been spent on counterintelligence, bearing in mind as well that Lou Elizondo was actually the one who was in charge of counterintelligence and security for this program. Very interesting to consider as well. He would know what what was disinformation, what was true and legit documents and what wasn't. It, it It's very, very interesting. I'm, I'm not exactly sure myself what my takeaway is on all of this, but it certainly opens a can of worms that's interesting to think about in more detail. We're talking about £220 million being spent on counterintelligence efforts. That I mean, that is... It's some figure, isn't it? Anyway, you know, when you consider all of that, how deliberately muddy the waters are from the, for the public and even for the people who are on the inside of this, you know, it does make more sense why somebody would want to be very, very cautious about revealing and verifying any information. Now, there was some really interesting wording as well used by Jeremy Corbell several times uh, on Twitter and I think in one of the interviews as well in the most recent weaponized episode where Corbell specifically talks about penetrating the hull. Now, George Knapp has revealed that Lukatsky has gone considerably further off record than what he said in that interview. So that that would suggest that George Knapp and possibly as an extension of that Jeremy Corbell would be aware of information from Lukatsky that he's not been able to say publicly yet. Now, is that talking about penetration of the hull a way of putting some further information out there without Lukatsky directly having to say it himself? I think that's a possibility and I think that could be quite significant. Like, number one, it seems as though from the statements that are in the book already that have been authorised for publication, it seems as though this wasn't some kind of like rocky meteor type thing that, you know, maybe it's a technology, maybe it's just a lump of rock. You know, because it was talked about as having streamlined configuration and clearly being a vehicle, you know. And number number two, they're talking about gained access and then if what I've said before is accurate, maybe it's not, but if it is, talking about penetrating the hull, gaining access to the interior, it sort of sounds like a lot of work went into that. It clearly wasn't just an open door, for example, otherwise they would have just got in. There would have been no gaining access in terms of having to penetrate the hull, having to get inside. You would just get in, wouldn't you? you just go in. But it seems to me that if they've penetrated the hull, Again, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seems to suggest, and that specific wording has been used several times by Corbell, was there even a door? That's a bit of food for thought, isn't it? Was there, was there a door, but the door was impenetrable, they couldn't get it open, so they had to penetrate the hull? Or was there even a door at all? And there sort of does remain a, the possibility of some kind of you know, Russian, Chinese, whatever, misdirection attempt some kind of weird vehicle that you create and you drop it out of the plane or you place it on the ground however however you might do that for the for the u.s to basically spend time and money looking into it and you know wasting resources and time we know again we know that that's happened in the past you know the intelligence agencies within the u.s throw out deliberate red herrings for the russians so that they waste their time and resources looking into it and you know if you sap away a certain percentage of your adversary's 
capabilities and resources so that they're wasting the time on red herrings it gives you a bit of an edge so we know these things do happen but if it was extremely difficult to get inside of and they eventually gained access somehow that would suggest that it's made of some material that's you know perhaps non-human in origin let's say the russians made a saucer shaped object you know perfectly smooth blah 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 and they dropped it into the desert for the reasons that i described just now and if even if that was made of the highest grade materials humans have access to it wouldn't be that difficult for the us to get through that material and get inside so if it were clearly a material that was you know very thin or something but it was stronger than anything that we know of in terms of metal alloys and things and you couldn't get through it with ordinary tools and that would be a dead giveaway a dead giveaway that it is something of, of non-human origin also just worth thinking about if it was some kind of ai controlled craft there actually may be no reason for a door you know i was talking about whether or not it even had a door well, of course, if it was AI controlled, you wouldn't actually have any kind of a door, would you? I always think back to if anybody's seen Battlestar Galactica, you know, the type of, of vehicles that they they have, they're essentially kind of like living craft. Very interesting to consider, actually, that those kind of very well thought out sci-fi concepts and how it could relate to actual, you know, reality, I suppose you'd say. Drones, for example, that we use day to day now, the military's, you know, all across the world are using drones they don't have doors because there's no room for occupants inside because they've they've literally not got occupants inside you know and maybe that kind of thing would have necessitated gaining access to the hole penetrating the hole as described um by corbell there anyway food for thought i am reading between the lines there rather than a specific statement but again just interesting to consider and if, if anybody's got thoughts on that Gives a shout. Get in touch at UFO Thinker on Twitter, UFO Thinker at hotmail.com or UFO Thinker at protonmail.com. Give us a shout. It'd be good to get some other thoughts on that. I wonder if anyone else has picked up on that penetrate the whole comment and, and what it could mean and so on. But the fact is, getting down to brass tacks, as we say, we have a, pre a previous official government UFO program director confirming that there is a craft that's not only there being stored, but they've gained access to the inside. Now, that that's not exactly new because, you know, within the UFO community, that's been discussed for like, I don't know, 50 years or beyond that even. But coming from somebody in that position is new. Make no mistake about that. I mean, imagine if Sean Kirkpatrick said that. I mean, they're not in a dissimilar position. You know, if you contrast this statement from a predecessor to Kirkpatrick in some ways, even though these kind of, these programs are sort of operated out of a different part of the US government and stuff, but still, the lineage is basically RSAP to ATIP to the UAP task force to the AOIMSG to what we've got now, which is Arrow. You know, it's essentially a predecessor. You know, it's the equivalent position. And of that of that group, that 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 government UFO investigative effort, shall we say? the current director is saying oh yeah nothing to see here you know 95 percent of this stuff's just prosaic and then we've got the old director from only a few iterations previously saying that they've got a non-human craft which they've managed to get access to the inside and they're attempting to reverse engineer it it's a very different tune that these two individuals are singing isn't it you know also pretty significantly too matt ford 
who listeners actually may remember from when he was on, on my show not long ago as a guest. And of course, many know as the host of the, the great uh, Good Trouble show. We've done some really interesting interviews recently as well. So Matt just recently reported that according to his sources uh, that he's in touch with, the allegation is that there is actually a secret committee, essentially, that's directing Arrow's actions, which is comprised of officials directly involved with the legacy UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering programs. Now, if that's true, and it still is an if until it's verified by other journalists and backed up from other sources and things, which I know the work to do that has already started, it is a pretty big development. It would mean that there's a clear issue with Arrow, not just being toothless in terms of not being given the access that it needs and like i've discussed in the past you know if, you, if you're having a, an investigative effort that doesn't have the accesses to investigate properly then you can use it as a bit of a puppet to say oh arrow hasn't seen any evidence of this well they've not seen any evidence of anything if you're not giving them the tools to do so but even beyond that this revelation would mean that arrow and potentially kirkpatrick are actively spinning this issue to minimize it deliberately in terms of what information gets out and as I've said, that is a, a pretty massive allegation, very serious allegation, and, and I'm sure there will be more follow-up on it. But for now, uh, it's definitely an interesting development, and we'll see how things progress on that side. Should be very interesting. We'll see how it all goes. Now, another thing that's uh, come out of this Lukatsky interview as well, going back to that for a second, um, because it's interesting, we're sort of getting more out of the government's previous generation of ufo programs than we are out of the current one at this point in time which is very interesting and another thing that's uh, kind of come out of this lukatsky interview is that it was it was described as frustrating by many including even jeremy corbell who was actually part of the interview and i'd put on twitter uh, i'll just read it out because it's quite a good summary of my thoughts on it i'm honestly a bit shocked that people are frustrated by the lukatsky interview uh, it's a pretty huge revelation that someone in his position has confirmed this. He's not just going to give in to tough questioning and reveal anything further than what he was authorised to publish via Dopser. Now, Dopser is basically the, uh, the the pre-approval for publication for anybody who's subject to, you know, like limitations on what they can discuss regarding classif classified aspects of their former work for the government if they want to publish something in a book talking about something that may even possibly touch on some of that they have to have it pre-approved first via DOPSA, D-O-P-S-R and that stands for by the way apologies if you can hear all sorts of weird noise faintly in the background uh, we currently have the, the bin wagon going down the street uh, the, the trash man as they call it in the states I think, uh, whatever so yeah, I've got a limited window of recording so I will have to push on despite the the possibility of a faint uh, bottles being crushed sound in the background so um, DOPSA stands for Defence Office of Pre-Publication and Security Review uh, which basically um, works with the various uh, you know folks involved to, to actually go through those pre-release publications as I discussed um earlier on now uh, at the end of the day he's not just gonna you know go through the process of getting something authorized for publication through dopsa and then somebody asks him a tough question in an interview on a podcast and he just goes oh okay then here's all the info it'd be pretty concerning if that was the case wouldn't it um at the end of the day 
we've now got further information verifying what Grush, Eric Davis, Elizondo and, and various others have said. Um, but Lukatsky is not going to deviate even a single word from what Dopser have authorised. Why? Because, as I mentioned earlier, he's not going to compromise his own safety and legal position or national security. Uh, in the interview, he did say that he's hoping to get further statements cleared. That in itself is very interesting. Let's see what's to come from all of that. And until then, he's not just going to cave into questions on a podcast. It's totally unrealistic to think that he would, and to do so would be massively irresponsible. Furthermore, if senior intelligence and military officials actually did something like that, it'd be a major cause for concern. I mean, you know, same goes for the disclosure advocate question. He was asked if he's an advocate for disclosure, and essentially he said, essentially he said no. But obviously, he is a disclosure advocate in some regards because he's going through the trouble of having these books authorized for publication that he knows has got additional information for the public. So you know. It, the more sort of nuanced way to look at that would be, is he a, an advocate for total disclosure? And the answer to that is probably no. Is he a, an advocate for limited responsible disclosure You know, within the constraints of, of maintaining national security advantages, etc.? Then the answer to that is probably yes. And to be honest, all of my consideration of this issue, you know, I'm basically along those lines. I'm not in favour of completely throwing open the lid of Pandora's box because we don't know what's in that box. You know, do we really want, you know, things that could potentially lead to physics and, you know, weapons breakthroughs for for adversarial nations to have access? You know, do we want those those adversaries to have access to that info? I, I don't think we do. And it's it's understandable that national security comes first above everything, especially for somebody who's worked, had a whole career in you know, essentially defence and national security issues. And it pays to remember that these are credible people. The same reason that we take what they're saying very seriously, the fact that they ran ORSAP, the fact that they had the expertise and, and they're a credible individual, and that's why when he says that we think that there's, you know, when he says that there's a saucer that they've managed to gain access to, we believe that because of his background. We should also sort of take that into consideration when he's saying that he can't reveal further details. You know, again, his credibility should back up that that's a valid point. And, you know, the fact that he's not willing to go beyond what he's had pre, pre-released, uh, pre-authorised for publication through Dopsa, that should actually add to the credibility of what's being said, in my opinion and not give cause for concern that he's trying to sell more books down the line, as some people have suggested. I mean, do we really think uh, a retired rocket scientist is like hurting for cash, you know, needs a few extra quid? I really don't think he is. And, you know, selling these books, the fact is, at the end of the day, there's three authors to those books. It's a relatively niche market. I, I, I don't know what the figures are, but I can't imagine there's a vast amount of money in that for Lukatsky. I don't think that's the reason why they do these books. I think it's more likely to set the record straight, as it were. You know, Perhaps there's a little bit of ego in there where certain people would like to make sure that their names go down in the history books or whatever it might be, which, again, I suppose you, know, you, could, you could sort of understand why that might be the case. Um, but I certainly don't think it's to cash in and make more b- money out of books. There's a lot of other ways that you could do that if that's what you wanted to do. I mean, Lukatsky's given about three interviews. 
if you really wanted to sell your books and promote it, you'd go on a full press run, wouldn't you? You'd do what a lot of other people do and do every single podcast that's willing to take you to, in order to be able to promote your book. And that doesn't seem to be happening. And let's be honest, as I say, somebody who's already retired, somebody who is basically you know, an extremely high-level rocket scientist, government contractor, he's probably made his money, let's be honest. Um, so the fact is, we've had further confirmation now from somebody who is essentially Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick's predecessor confirming everything that various other people have said for many years, the existence of a craft being held by the US government or being held, you know, at least partially being known about by the US government. It's not clear exactly who has the rights to this craft and whether how many craft there are and so on. But essentially... We know that there's a craft being held and that the gaining of entry to that craft has taken place. And that's pretty massive. I mean, we've not seen pictures of the craft. We've not actually heard directly from somebody who's been inside the craft or seen it with their own eyes. When asked about that specifically, Lukatsky wouldn't answer. And I thought it was quite interesting that the way that Jeremy Corbell actually asked him about the gaining entry of this craft... He said, so let me just confirm Lukatsky. I'm paraphrasing, by the way, this isn't a direct quote. He said something like, so there's a, a craft being held by the US government and you've been able to gain access to it. When he said you, Lukatsky wouldn't answer that question because it taps into whether or not Lukatsky himself is a direct witness to this, this craft and he himself has been able to gain access after that, in the interview, Jeremy Corbell actually rephrased it to say um, almost exactly what's in the book, which is the government have got access uh, to this craft, a store in this craft, and the government have been able to gain access. At that point, Lukatsky is happy to say, yes, that's the case. Again, partly because it's directly the wording that's already been pre-authorised, and perhaps partly because he doesn't want to personally say whether he himself has seen it, because that gets into direct liability, direct personal liability. And there's also a similarity there with other officials who have who have, have been willing to say that the government are aware of this, the government are, are aware of that, but they don't want to be drawn on whether they themselves are personally aware of a case or whether they themselves have personally seen the craft. David Grush, another one, who has said when he was asked at this uh, that direct question at the hearing recently, he he declined to answer as well and won't go into whether he personally has seen it. Now, the temptation there is to take that as a yes. Because let's be honest, if Lukatsky hadn't seen that craft and hadn't been inside the craft, if you ask him, have you yourself been inside? There is an argument that he would just say no. I mean, this is what Eric Davis has, has done, you know, many, many times. Whenever he can say... Whenever something is a no answer, he will say no. If something is a yes answer, often he will say, I can't answer the question. So you could apply that same interpretation to what Lukatsky's saying here. But then again, he could just be being tricky and refusing to confirm or deny, even though it actually might be a denial. We don't know for sure. It is all massively reading between the lines and having to speculate based on what the information is that's available. But... Very interesting, and it certainly will be interesting to see what further statements can be revealed down the line in in future books, interviews, whatever it might be. And he did also talk about the intent of what these, whatever these others might be as well. 
And he started off by saying that they're not deliberately malevolent or something along the lines of that. Again, paraphrasing a bit there. But sort of stopped short of making the full statement that they don't mean us any harm or they're not going to do any harm to us or something. At least that's my interpretation of it. He started going down a path and then sort of changed tack halfway through. He also talked about men in black. Kelleher even discussed some clear involvement in some cases of, of men in black, you know, which is absolutely wild in itself, you know. And for me, they talked about a lot of very interesting topics and, and you know, did break some new ground. And I did found it I did find it very interesting personally. Now, I do I I also sort of st- started off there by saying I'm shocked that people are frustrated. Don't get me wrong, I'm also frustrated. I would like clear answers as well. But we've just got to bear in mind that that's not really how this stuff works, is it? You know, I ended up saying on, on Twitter that it's like if you like if you're interested in this topic, you know, the old adage of um, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, you know, holds true for sure. You know, you've got to be prepared for the long game. You know, we're going to get dribs and drabs of information coming out. When new information comes out, it's not exactly clear if it's some kind of misdirection, misinformation, disinformation. You know, it's so, so complex and you've just got to be prepared for that. And uh, when we've heard things in the past from folks saying, you know, if you want instant answers on this topic, you may as well go and pick up another hobby hobby for five years and come back. It's incremental gains, isn't it? Even with the legislation that takes place, uh, that gets pushed through by folks in favour of transparency on the inside, what happens is you get two steps forward because you know very significant requirements of what these UFO entities, UFO groups, should I say, within the the government or whatever, you know what they're required to do, what they're required to reveal. The legislation sounds absolutely amazing, but then it's always one and a half steps back because there's wriggle out attempts they figure out where they can wriggle out of fulfilling the full requirements of that legislation just like when all of the exciting language in the legislation went through a couple of years back and instead of getting what was actually required by the legislation we got AOI MSG which was basically a total damp squib as as they say you know the the DOD figured out how they could wriggle out following year the legislation was tightened up and the wording was massively beefed up and, and made more difficult to, to wriggle out of. Um, and again, the same thing, you know, it sounded extremely promising, but wriggle out attempts took place. And uh, as we know, what the current state of where we're at with Arrow at this point, it's very difficult to to imagine that they're going to give us anything particularly interesting by way of answers. So we just have to be patient, be prepared for incremental gains. I think you've got to be thankful for what we do get in terms of information, which is, I think a pretty huge, you know, confirmation of what we'd long thought to be the case. That's what we've had a lot. It's a trend recently. Grush has come out and basically sort of claimed that what he's seen behind that curtain of secrecy backs up a lot of the, you know, the, the common threads and narratives that are discussed within the UFO community, even from the inside, when you really dig down and you've got the relevant accesses a lot of that stuff still stands up and there are people credibly you know credibly stating that that those things are the case and um the the issues raised earlier in this episode about disinformation and about the extent of that disinformation and and how muddy how deliberately muddy the waters are not only in the public sphere but also on the inside 
it is just you know an illustration of how difficult it is to get to the actual facts in this topic but you know i quite enjoy a bit of a, a challenge in a way you know a bit of a a puzzle and a mystery and that's for sure what this is and as we go along you know things will become clearer no doubt as they have done over the last few years so i'm gonna leave it there for now um an interesting uh interesting episode to sort of to talk through really this and uh i hope folks have enjoyed listening to it if, you, if you've been one of the the people who've got in touch to say that you listen on your dog walk or on your way to work i hope you've enjoyed your commute to work this morning and i uh, hope i've kept you good company and um for anybody who would like to support the podcast um on patreon well that's basically the only way you can really support the podcast because uh, i've run zero ads on this podcast as you'll know from when you press play you don't have to listen to some annoying advert for a minute you just get straight into it so i don't have product sponsorships or you know cheesy promotions i always want to give people the best listening experience possible and I pretty much hate how adverts are everywhere in all the content on YouTube and Spotify and everything. So I decided to do things a little bit differently, you know, probably making a rod for my own back in a way. But Spotify, I don't know if people are aware of this because unless you have a podcast, you might not, you might not even realize, but Spotify pays zero to podcasters. And despite the like thousands of downloads per episode, you know, I get absolutely nothing in terms of, um, income from the podcast through Spotify. I don't know how we've ended up at that situation where that's the case because it certainly doesn't seem fair, but that's how it is. Uh, however, you can support the podcast on patreon.com forward slash UFO thinker. And it's as little as a couple of dollars, couple of pounds, whatever your local currency is per month. And that allows you to join in the community discussion on Patreon whenever I put a new episode out. People weigh in with the comments and their thoughts, which is always good to read through and uh, get a bit of discussion going. You can directly message me. Uh, you can get exclusive benefits like early access to episodes and exclusive Patreon-only episodes as well from time to time. And anybody who listens to the podcast can listen to it ad-free. And that is all thanks to the amazing Patreon supporters. So everybody who already supports on Patreon... Um, I really appreciate it and thank you so much. I'm proud to do things a little bit differently. You know, adverts absolutely do my head in, as we say in the northwest of England. And I massively appreciate any and all support for, from those who can support on Patreon because it literally allows me to keep the pod running. I don't earn uh, really much in terms of the way of, of, of profit from this. It just covers the costs of hosting the podcast and all the various different costs associated with it and allows me to keep the pod running. And hopefully, if you know support in that way increases over the years i may be able to d dedicate a little bit more of my time to doing this who knows maybe even one day do this full time i would very much love to do so so anyway that's about all for today i hope folks have enjoyed listening i'm going to be back again with dave as i mentioned earlier doing a round table uh, we'll be recording that in a few days from now as at the time of recording so hope folks have enjoyed listening really appreciate it and if you've listened all the way to the end here, you are clearly a hardcore listener of the podcast. And uh, it's great that you've uh, that you've obviously enjoyed it because you've stuck around right till the very last minute of the, the episode here. Unless, of course, you've fallen asleep, in which case my voice is just uh, you know echoing away in the abyss and somebody's fallen asleep on the sofa next to the podcast playing. <laughs> so I don't know what the case is. But anyway, one way or another, you're here at the end. Thank you. And I'm glad you've enjoyed it. And catch you in the next episode. 
UFO Thinker Podcast.